Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. This is session number 255 as we begin to turn the corner. We've come to the turning of the tide on the winter storm front on Karathras. Um, and it will not shock you by this point to hear that Boromir has yet more things to say. Um, in fact, we are scarcely going to be a, a slide without Boromir for some time here now. Um, this is really kind of the middle of Boromir's high water mark in some ways. Um, his helpfulness in the snow in Karathras. And of course, what we've been seeing over the course of the last few discussions has been exactly how helpful um, uh, he has been, not just... Uh, in breaking a path through the snow, which we're not even going to get to tonight. Um, but uh, and that's, of course, the sort of the most memorable thing, right? Boromir actually enabling the hobbits to escape physically from from the snow. Um, but we've seen the active role that Boromir <clears throat> has been playing, um, has been playing uh, all the way all the way through. So anyway, um, <laughs> yeah, um, uh, true enough, Matt says, high water mark might not be the most sensitive descriptor to go with remembering forward. True enough, true enough. Um, but, um, uh, anyway, we're, we will, we will, we will see his contributions here today. Um, just a couple quick things. Uh, first, I wanted to remind folks of upcoming moots, um, we have Sunshine Moot is the next moot that's coming up now soon in just a few weeks down in Orlando, Florida. Um, we're going to be on the weekend of the what is it, the 17th, I believe, of March. I think that's the correct uh, uh, the correct number. The, the, yes, the correct number. 17th of March. Um, we're going to be I'm going to be down in Orlando, Florida. Really looking forward to catching up with folks uh, down there. Always great to connect with people at re regional moots. Um, Always looking forward to this. This will be, of course, like my second Sunshine Moot in a row, basically, as, of course, I discovered after I got there that uh, Queensland in Australia is called the Sunshine State. Um, in uh, That's like its motto in Australia. So second, two consecutive <laughs> Sunshine Moots in a row I'll be doing. Um, but um, anyway, so uh, that'll be... That'll be fun. But we'll be doing the American Sunshine State here uh, in this coming month in March in just a few weeks. Uh, there's still time to register for that. And even if you can't make it down to Orlando, of course, you can still um, uh, you can still come and join us remotely, uh, which I encourage you to do. So uh, go to signumuniversity.org. Look at our events uh, section there on the right hand side of our menu. And you can go down to regional moots and see the direct links there to the registration for Sunshine Moot. So, um, uh, anyway, there it is. There's the direct link uh, pasted into the chats there, so you can you can see that. But um, anyway, that is um, that is the next moot coming up. After that, we have two others um, which we are planning on. One for which registration is open which is Texmoot. Uh, Texmoot is going to be down in San Antonio now. I'm excited to get to visit another city in uh, Texas that I've never been to before. Texmoot uh, is the only one of our moots that has wandered around. It's never been in the same place twice. We've had Texmoot in uh, Fort Worth, Waco, 
Austin and Houston, and now it's going to be in San Antonio. Um, uh, so that's going to be a lot of fun. Um, uh, looking forward to getting to San Antonio. So um, we're going to be in San Antonio, San Antonio uh, on the 15th of April. So it is, of course, also tax moot this year as it happens. But um, but yeah, it's true. There's a there's a lot more room to roam in Texas, so uh, so it's not that hard to roam about. Um, but uh, anyway, yeah. So that's gonna be that's gonna be a lot of fun. I think our our tour of Texas cities might be close to done. I doubt we're gonna make it out to Lubbock or anything like that. Um, as far as I know, we don't have any connections out there. So uh, so we'll see. But um, um, anyway, we're. Uh, we're, we're, we're looking forward to another fun, uh, text moot this year in April. And then in May, we don't have registration op- open for this yet, but we are very, very close to finalizing all the last details for Maple Moot, our first ever moot in Canada. Um, we're going to be in Toronto in May. So, um, you can kind of, uh, uh, sort of a save the date for the 20th of May, because it looks like that's. Uh, almost certainly going to happen. I'll let you know when that's definite and registration is open, but that's what we're, um, uh, that's what we are looking at. So, uh, Toronto, May 20th for Maple Moot, our first ever Canadian Moot. Very excited about that. And then of course, uh, Myth Moot is coming up obviously at the end of June, same time it always is, uh, down in DC, same place it always is back to our old venue, uh, the National Conference Center, which we're excited to return to. Um, so, that is, those are the upcoming events that are happening. Um, also, a, a reminder, thanks. Lots of people have been uh, subscribing to receive my book. I've been getting comments from folks who have, been read, who have read chapter one of my book, which dropped last week. Um, so uh, I really exciting to see people reading that and uh, subscribing to that. Um, you can go to press.signumuniversity.org and find, you know, look on, look, look for me in the list of our authors. And, uh, you can, uh, there are direct links there to our registration page, uh, for subscriptions or for my author circle. Um, it's, uh, it's going to be, um, uh, it's, it's, it's great fun. Um, revising chapter two right now, getting ready for chapter two, uh, to be released next, um, next month. That's the word I'm looking for. Yeah, next month uh, in March, um, right around just before, um, just before um, Sunshine Moot, we'll be I'll be uh, dropping chapter two. So, um, anyway, that's been um, uh, it, it, as I say, it's been it's been great fun to uh, see people reading that. Um, this this process again, it's so rewarding. I think back to the couple years that I spent planning proposing, um, you know, from, from the time when I set out to say like, Hey, I want to write a book, um, on the Hobbit and, you know, kind of sending out proposals to publishers and things like that, you know, from the whole beginning of that process until the day the book came out was several years, at least two years minimum. Um, and, uh, and it was a, you know, this like long time consuming and almost wholly solitary process. Uh, and to have 
this new process that we're putting into place in the Signum University Press, this new process of uh, serial release of new works, the ways in which people are able to come along with me uh, on this journey as I, um, as I develop uh, and write this book, um, and the support that I'm getting from my author circle, it's just such a different experience uh, and so much fun. So um, anyway, that is... Um, um, that is something that's been a lot of fun. So please do go to press.signumuniversity.org uh, if you want to see, of course. We haven't yet gotten to the parts where I am, in fact, basing uh, what I'm writing on the book and bringing st together stuff that we talked about in the class, because, of course, I'm still writing on the prologue, which we didn't discuss in the class. And then I'll be writing on Chapter 1, which we only touched on briefly in the class, though there I will be working in some of the things that we looked at and talked about uh, there. But um, anyway, uh, getting there. We'll get there. Um, so yes, and uh, I, I saw people were sort of speculating last time, since I'm planning to write a chapter a month and it's going to be uh, about three chapters of my book per chapter of The Fellowship of the Ring or so, that means I'm going to be moving through book one of The Fellowship of the Ring in this book um, at about the pace of around a chapter, you know, a Fellowship of the Rings chapter every three months, which means fairly soon we will catch up to where we are in the class. Um, I do plan to pause at this point. For now, at least, the current plan is to pause when I get there and not move past uh, and continue writing on chapters we haven't discussed yet in the class. Um, but that just means I'll get the chance to work on other things while I wait for our Tuesday evening discussions to catch up with us. But um, uh, anyway... I did indeed include Bilbo giving gifts at the party uh, gate like a generous king would. Yes, yes, exactly. I did talk about that. Um, so, yeah, so we'll we'll see. We'll see. The, the question is going to be how close are we going to get to the end of book two before I am ready to start book two? Um, who knows? Not going to make that decision in advance. We'll see what happens when we get there. But... Um, um, yeah, Barry Adair, exactly. I'm, uh, uh, I'm going to be, uh, as you say, many of you guys have caught up with exploring the Lord of the Rings and now it's my turn to catch up. Uh, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Aronoff says by the time, by the time I'm finished writing my book on, uh, on, on book one, we may have gotten to the West Gate of Moria. Maybe. You never know. Aronoff, you never know. Um, <laughs> but we'll see. We'll see what happens. Um, all right, so let us jump into our text discussion. I see uh, April Daydreams here, so uh, it's time to get going. Um, all right, so we were all huddling around the fire. We had that wonderful visual image of the firelight playing on their faces and those that the tactile imagery of the snow melting down around underneath their feet, uh, and, um, uh, and and all the, and Gandalf, of course, and his concern about other people being able to at the least um, deduce, if not actually detect in some more or less indirect way, his presence um, in the past by the fact that he lit the magical fire. Um, and now we continue on. The fire burned low, and the last faggot was thrown on. The night is getting old, said Aragorn. The dawn is not far off. If any dawn can pierce these clouds, said Gimli, Boromir stepped out of the circle and stared up into the blackness. The snow is growing less, he said, and the wind is quieter. 
Frodo gazed wearily at the flakes still falling out of the dark to be revealed white for a moment to the light of the dying fire, but for a long time he could see no sign of their slackening. Then suddenly, as sleep was beginning to creep over him again, he was aware that the wind had indeed fallen, and the flakes were becoming larger and fewer. Very slowly a dim light began to grow. At last the snow stopped altogether. Um, okay. All right, so... We have two things happening here in this passage. First, we have the three-person exchange. Aragorn, Gimli, Boromir at the start. And then we have, in the second part of this passage, sort of channeled through Frodo's sort of first-hand experience here, um, again, another one of those paragraphs which gives us the sense of what it was like to be there, right? What the people there not only were experiencing as far as their actual sensory perceptions and experiences, um, but what they were thinking and how they were feeling there. Um, so we get the interaction and then we get, in a sense, the reaction to it. Um, but, um, uh, okay, so... And yes, I agree, Scott, there's um, no proof one way or the other, um, if the faggot in question there is a single log or a bundle of sticks, exactly. Um, if they were sticks, bundling them together, especially at this point in the fire, right, makes a lot of, it'll burn a lot longer, you know, than uh, if they're all bundled together than if you just throw in an individual stick, you know, a twig at a time. Um, but yeah, it, it still really could be, um, could be either. Um, yeah. Oh, Mariel, that's a really good observation. Um, Mariel says, from a textual history sense, it's interesting that this night is so imprinted in Frodo's mind, considering that this is going to be written after Mordor. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, in fact, in some ways, Mariel, when you think about it from that perspective, the whole length of this chapter is, well, I won't go so far as to call it odd, um, but noteworthy, isn't it? Um, what we're getting through this chapter are the early experiences, the early perceptions, the early even misunderstandings. Uh, you're thinking, of course, of like Sam's speech about um, thinking that the um, that Carothros might be Mount Doom, right? Um, until Gimli spoke his piece. Them, the hobbits especially, not really understanding, knowing what to expect, how to contextualize, what's going on, um, and all of, uh, all of those kinds of things. And of course, we think back just a few passages ago, when he was lapsing into, you know, a, um, uh, like a hypothermic coma, right, and having his little uh, uh, dream vision experience there, um, he... The comment from his imagined Bilbo was that there was no need to come home to report snowstorms on, what was it, January the 8th? I forget the exact date. Uh, January the 12th? January the 12th, wasn't it? Um, snowstorms on January 12th, yes. Um, uh Snowstorms on January the 12th, there was no need to come home to report that, right? That is to say, we get this prompting that at the end of the day, just 
isn't a huge deal, right? Um, certainly compared to the dangers that they will face later, the wonders that they will see later, um, the life-changing experiences that Frodo especially will have later. Um, you know, one could, um, one could easily forgive Frodo if as narrator, he either, he, you know, he, he looked back at the night on Carothros in one of two ways, right? He could either say, Wait, that was nothing, man. That was nothing compared with what we suffered later on. Like that was a that was a you know, it was a little chilly and everything, but whatever. It was no big deal. Like the, the downplaying of it, because again, in the in the scale of what is gonna be faced, it surely is relatively minor. Um but um or another alternative would just be uh, for him to say little about it, right? Um, to either, you know, sort of speak slightingly of it or just speak less of it. But he doesn't. But he doesn't. Um, and instead, what we get preserved here is this sense, is the early sense. The narrator, the voice of the narrator in The Lord of the Rings does a very careful job of bringing us as readers along and sort of remembering where we are as well in our own journeys. Um, although, especially from within the context of the textual frame of the book, that is thinking of the notes on Shire records and the insistence on the fact that Frodo, you know, wrote this and finalized the whole text after his uh, return from the journey. Um, that kind of after the fact emphasis of the narration of the text could well lead to lead us to expect things like that, or lead us to expect a less full uh, and less sort of engrossing um, easing into the experiences that all of the hobbits, especially Frodo, um, are going to go on and have uh, later on. But the text doesn't leave us behind in these ways. And these moments when we are invited to feel along with the hobbits, to experience along with the hobbits, to think the ways that the hobbits do, um, the way in which they both as speaking characters, especially Sam, of course, and as narrating characters, especially Frodo, of course, um, the way that they <clears throat> sort of serve as a very effective stand-in um, for us is, I think, a really important element of the effect of this story. Um, <clears throat> I've often said that I think that one of the things that makes The Lord of the Rings such a remarkable book, the, the kind of experience that people who love it tend to have, is one not just of an encounter with a wonderful story or a meeting of really endearing characters or something like that. There are some books that you might reread just because you love the characters so much you want to like hang out with them again, right? I mean, I think we, 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 we may all have had reading experiences like that. Um, there are other books that we might love because the story is so, um, you know, is so gripping, is so uh, powerful in how it brings us along that we want to go on that ride again, right? Uh, later on. 
But and the Lord of the Rings, to some extent, of course, has both of those. And, 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 and many people have had those kinds of experiences with the Lord of the Rings. But I think that the Lord of the Rings, what makes the Lord of the Rings different, what makes um, the reason it, you know, keeps winning all of the book of the century polls and things like that, the the, the what I think is a qualitatively different experience that um, Tolkien fans tend to have with the Lord of the Rings compared to um, the kind of experience that um, other people have of other books that they love is the immersion in the world. This, this sense of experiencing of the reality of middle earth and of the experiencing it as it were firsthand. Yeah. Josh, the kind of secondary belief that we are so effectually invited into as we're reading the story. And I think that we can really see in paragraphs like the last paragraph on this slide, the Frodo gazed wearily at the flakes still falling uh, paragraph, we can really see how Tolkien accomplishes that. Um, all of the care that he's taken to not just tell us what happened, not just tell us what people said. We don't just get dialogue, right? Again, some in some stories, some authors might have parked us in the middle of their camp and just given us a whole bunch of like, dialogue and banter, right? Those are the kinds of stories which, if they work well, are the kinds of stories where you where you want to go to hang out with the people again. You just, like, enjoy their company and how they play off of each other and everything, and that's just sort of fun to experience. Again, we get some of that, but that's not what drives this story, especially in this phase of the story. It's paragraphs like this um, that have really, I think... Um, that really kind of drive this experience and cue us as readers in our own, not only our own exploration of the world, which the hobbits of course are themselves seeing also for the first time, but also in how they're processing the story, you know, what is going on their not only their interactions with their immediate surroundings, but how they're contextualizing those things. And of course, we can think of passages perhaps later in the books when um, the hobbits are reflecting back on how they have changed in that regard, right? How they now look at the world in different ways. Of course, I'm thinking immediately and most famously of two passages that we've already spoken of to greater or lesser extents. Obviously, the Stairs of Kirith passage uh, with Frodo and Sam, but also the um, uh, the Houses of Healing passage with Mary and Pippin, um, when Mary is just waking up, of course, after the Battle of Pelennor Field. And um, anyway, so I think that it's um, uh, it is these the way in which we are the way in which Tolkien succeeds in bringing us through there and having the hobbits mediate bringing us through this, um, that is, um, uh, is, is I think really, really effective and really important. So I love lingering on these passes. So let's start with that. We'll come back to the, the verbal exchange. Frodo gazed wearily at the flakes still falling out of the dark to be revealed white for a moment in the light of the dying fire but for a long time he could see no sign of their slackening. So notice in that first sentence, notice what we are given through Frodo here, right? The, um, what we're kind of invited into. On the one hand, we get, as we so often get, some little sensual detail 
right? In this case, it's the visual sign. Um, he's gazing at the flakes that are falling and that revelation of them being revealed white for a moment in the light of the dying fire. Like you can kind of vaguely see, you know, like they, 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 they shine out white. And then, and of course this is a, an experience I think we've all had when, well, okay. I won't say all because not all of us live where there's snow, but um, if you've ever driven a car in the snow, of course, you will have had this exact experience where, you know, you're surrounded by snow and, and there's like the this sort of fuzzy darkness all around you, right? Um, and yet the snowflakes that come into the into the light, right, flash uh, white like that. You see, you know, right around you in this small space that's lit by um, by by lights, the snow suddenly shows up. Um, yeah. Okay. So we, we get that, that little detail. Um, and he's watching the snow, but could see no sign of their slackening. He's looking for them to slacken. This, of course, we haven't talked about the exchange, but Boromir was just talking, just saying that he believes the snow is growing less, but Frodo, Frodo can't see it. The adverb that we get wearily Frodo gazed wearily at the flakes still falling out of the dark. And of course, we get two things, I think, that kind of evokes two things to me. On the one hand, of course, they're tired, right? They're tired. It's coming to the end of the night. Now they've been traveling by night, so they've been sleeping during the day um, and traveling at night. So it's not like they're coming at the end of a night of no sleep, Um that's not precisely, you know, so they're not necessarily totally sleep deprived as we might sort of, as many people might associate with them being at the end of the night. Um, but still, it's been a tiring experience uh, this night for sure. But also just the weariness of gazing at the flakes still falling out of the dark. The, the kind of... Um, Mesmerism. It's true that being cold is exhausting, Almeria. I agree with that. Um, but um, uh, but in, but in any case, just like staring at snow and having been staring at snow. Snow is very mesmerizing, and it's fun. I love staring at snow for you know controlled <laughs> uh, uh, periods of time. Um, his dread of the snow continuing that remember the the details before about watching the snow mounting and mounting right and of course we began this passage with the fire burned low and the last faggot was thrown on they know i mean if the snow does not abate um aragorn has just offered hope that the dawn is not far off but that's not going to matter if it keeps snowing as hard as it's been if this snow keeps up throughout the day they're done for. Um, so staring at the snow and hoping that it's going to stop and just watching the slow relentlessness of the snow, um, I could easily imagine how that would be very weary in the light of the dying fire. Um, of the dying fire, that sense of the sort of slow hopelessness. Again, they're, they're powerless 
to do anything. They can't stop the wind. They can't stop the snow. Um, they've done everything in their power, including using Gandalf's magic and the Mirror of Rivendell. And yet still, uh, the, the snow is inexorable. Um, and he could see, for a long time, he could no, see no sign of their slacking. And then suddenly, as sleep was beginning to creep over him again, which, as I saw somebody uh, mentioning before, um, <clears throat> is not a good sign. I mean, he's sleepy. It's bedtime, right? I mean, again, they've been sleeping during the day. Uh, so it's coming up on bedtime. So he would be sleepy anyway. But there's a particularly ominous overtone um, to being in a hypothermia-ish situation uh, and having sleep beginning to creep over him again. Notice the, um, notice the, the verb structure there, right? He doesn't begin to feel sleepy or something like this. It's not a sentence about him. It's a sentence about sleep. Um, as well, okay. He was aware as the main subject and verb of the sentence. It's the subordinate cause as sleep was beginning to creep over him. Again, this, um, this personification of sleep. Um, sleep is the agent that is doing the action and it's creeping over him. It's like crawling up him and over him. It's, a um, an ominous and well, creepy image, but that's not saying very much now, is it? Um, whether you think of it as like, um, you know, Things that creep like this include not only things like, you know, bugs and spiders and things, but also um, uh, also like shadows creeping, right, as time slowly passes. Um, there's a similar kind of sense of inevitability um, with that. And yeah, Boromir's Horn, great observation, um, uh, is the last time the hobbits were attacked by sleep. Um, by the willow in the old forest. Yeah, old man willow. Um, the sleep here doesn't seem to be as compulsive as that was, right? That was so... The compulsion to sleep there, the, comp the compulsion brought on them by old man willow, was so extreme that Frodo could be tipped off the branch into the water of the river and not wake up. Um... But, um, oh yeah, fog creeps too, Rowan, I agree, that's really good. Um, but, um, uh, but yeah, does the sleep in the Barrow Downs count? Well, it could accept praise, we don't get any... Yeah, Matt's thinking the same thing. But we don't get any description of it coming over them, right? Um, they did fall asleep, um... But remember the way that their the act of their falling asleep is treated. Um, remember, we get that little um, ominous and mysterious hypothetical, right? That like perhaps sitting in the sun a bit too long, a nice big lunch, you know, uh, uh, you know, all of these things were enough perhaps to explain what happened. Um, but what we don't get is that first-person sense of sleepiness increasing, right? Trying to fight off sleep, and that the sense of uh, sleep's inexorable and ineluctable approach. Um, that, 
I think is um, exactly, yeah, they, they woke suddenly from a sleep they'd never meant to take is exactly what we're told. So it's, it's their sudden waking up and that, you know, oh, shoot, we, you know, slept and we shouldn't have. Um, that's the experience that gets emphasized exactly on, on the Barrow Downs. Um, however, I would say that um, the fact that in both of those other cases, the sleep seems to be coming from outside, right? I mean, we have precedent for this. Old Man Willow establishes a clear and strong initial precedent that um, sleep may come upon you from without, uh, and that that sleep may be the urge. You know, there we even hear the actual whispering of the tree. Sam hears it, right? Sam hears Old Man Willow whispering about sleep. Um, Harkin, he says, right? Harkin, he's uh, singing about sleep now. Um, uh, with the Barrow Downs, again, they, it's the, narr- you know, the narrator speaks of it more indirectly, right? We don't get that same account of sleepiness coming over them. Um, and yet there is a sense, right? We are invited to think it's perhaps a, you know, a big lunch and sitting too long in the warm sun is not actually enough to explain what happened next. Maybe it is, but maybe not. And if not, then what happened, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, anyway, so, um, we have two examples, both of them, you know, what do those two things have in common? The sleep on the Barrow Downs and the sleep under Old Man Willow. Both times they had placed themselves in the vicinity of a powerful, local, malevolent spiritual being who influenced them in that way. That their sleep on the Barrow Downs is most likely caused by a Barrowite. That, it seems to me, very, at the very least, probable that the Barrowite caused them to fall asleep like that. Um, We know for a fact that Old Man Willow caused them to fall asleep like that. What could be more, you know, you could, you could, you could construct a similar sentence to the Barrow Down sentence here, right? Um, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, a night full of fears and anxiety, um, you know, a long, uh, day of waiting and encroaching hypothermia was enough to explain what happened. Right. Um, but, um, but again, I'm not sure of it. Right. Or at the least we're invited to doubt hypothermia does make you get sleepy. Right. So there is in a sense, nothing unnatural about this, but then there was nothing unnatural. There's nothing unnatural about taking a nap after lunch in the sun either on the Barrow Downs. Um, but, um, and besides which, the hypothermia is itself <laughs> caused by Karathras, right? So um, um, I don't think that he is afflicting them with sleep in the same way that old man Willow. I don't think he's singing to them of sleep, right? He's singing to them of, like, frozen death. But, um, but I do think it's well-remembered. I do think that that... Um, uh, 
it's the verb creep that makes me think of those other times. The, I, the, the image of sleep as an active thing creeping over them, you know, coming to them and creeping over them as if the sleep itself is a kind of attack from without. Um, yeah, yeah. That's what makes me think of those other of those other passages. Then suddenly, as sleep was beginning to creep over him again, he was aware that the wind had indeed fallen and the flakes were becoming larger and fewer. Suddenly, he can see Frodo experiences that it's true. The snow is stopping. The wind is slowing. Very slowly, a dim light began to grow. All of the positive things that were just said turn out to be correct. And last, at last, the snow stopped altogether. And it's over. Um, now, let's go back to the things that were said earlier on. Um, Aragorn begins it. The night... The last faggot was just thrown on. Everybody has to be thinking the same thing. What I was saying before, right? Our fire is almost gone. This is it. Should the snow continue? Continue. It doesn't have to continue for another day. Should the snow continue for like another four hours or six hours or whatever? Like they're going to start freezing again. Um, and they'll be no closer to being able to escape from where they are. So... It's pretty dire. Aragorn chooses that moment to step up and say a hopeful thing. The night is getting old. The dawn is not far off. This, it will turn out, is one of Aragorn's favorite encouraging things to say. Right? If you, um, um, if you made a list of all of the encouraging things that Aragorn says in the entire Lord of the Rings... The dawn is not far off would be pretty high up on the list. He's going to trot that out on several occasions as an encouraging thing to say. Um, and I think that that's kind of fun. Um, yes, dawn is always the hope of man. He, he, he associates dawn with hope. Um, uh, yeah, the dawn is not far off. On the one hand, I think that, of course, he is making an observation which I'm sure is simply and objectively true. Um, the dawn is not far off. What is interesting is that that doesn't mean very much. That is to say, if we're all staring at the fire, thinking, soon the fire, our only source of warmth is going to be out and we're going to be forced to try to survive without fire again in this frozen blizzard. The coming of the dawn, not a game changer, really, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's really not. It might get a little warmer. I mean... In the winter, in the mountains, the temperature probably will rise from really, really cold to only really cold. Um, but, you know, is it is the is the temperature increase that dawn is likely to bring going to 
really make the difference between freezing to death and not freezing to death. Um, I don't, um, I don't think we have much reason. Yeah. I don't, I, I don't see much reason to think that what he's saying is certainly true. It's almost done, but he's, his intention seems to be about hope in general. That is, he seems to be speaking almost, almost sim- symbolically more than literally. Again, Dawn may actually, there will be other occasions on which Aragorn is looking forward to the Dawn. And on those other occasions, I think Dawn may have a little more obvious utility to it um, than, um, than it does here. Um, so his piece of encouragement, if you just take it only at face value, hey, the sun will be up soon. Great. So I'll be able to see my friends starving to death more clearly. Like, um, it's, uh, it's, that's, you know, again, it doesn't, it's not going to really move the needle as far as their survival is concerned, but it is nevertheless a word of hope and a sort of an image of hope. I mean, I think that what Aragorn is saying sort of indirectly here is don't give up hope, right? Things are changing. Things will change for the better soon. But he's speaking. It's just hope. I mean, it's just a a sort of blind hope. And as much as it's a symbol of hope, it's a kind of blind hope. He doesn't doesn't know that things are going to get better. Snowstorms in the mountains can easily last for several days. That would not be impossible. It could snow as hard as it was snowing that night for at least all the next day and all the next night. Like that is not, um, that is not unlikely at all, but evil Dr. Cannon, exactly. It's more Estelle than Amdir. Um, his reassurance is couched in the concrete. Yeah. Night is almost done. The dawn is not far off. And yet the encouragement that he's offering, I think, is much more intangible like that. It is Silk Westcott, like Hope is his middle name. You're right. Um, yeah, and it's true. Dawn is going to make things worse. Like, absolutely. Very true to Juice Man. Um, um, and is likely to raise their spirits to be able to s- just be able to, you know, see better again. But, um, but again, it's, it is not a concrete reassurance. It is not a, I know that things are getting better and we have reason to believe that they're getting better. Um, uh, don't worry. We are almost to the point where our danger is going to be significantly less. Like neither one of those two things are implicit in his statement. Gimli grumbles. If any dawn can pierce these clouds, said Gimli. Gimli has doubts. Um, Gimli seems to wonder if any hope that Aragorn is imagining is going to be able to overcome Karathras's power, right? Um... Yeah, it's true. So, Quasket, you're right. Gimli is also not from a race encouraged by sunlight, necessarily. Um, yeah, true enough. 
Um, yeah, yeah. But um, Gimli... Gimli's question is if any dawn can pierce these clouds. Like, will we even notice? Will we even know the difference? Um, and, you know, yes, you can generally tell the difference. I mean, when in the middle of a very heavy blizzard, it's not as dark as it is at night, um, generally speaking. So again, Gimli's comment is less about outward and physical matters, right? Gimli's not saying, well, actually, I doubt it's going to get any lighter. It'll get lighter. It'll get lighter. But is it going to make any difference? Can dawn pierce these clouds? Is any outside force going to be able, like, are they just in the grip of Karathras? And can anything stop him? If he, if Karathras has his mind set on killing them, on snowing them in and freezing them to death, um, do they actually have any hope? Um, then Boromir steps out of the circle and stares up into the blackness. The snow is growing less, he said, and the wind is quieter. Boromir's response... He does not just make an assurance about what's coming, right? Um, you know, that dawn is going to happen. Um, he, makes an, he makes observations of the snow and gives it as his opinion that the snow is actually, that there are actual signs that you can read. That the, snow, that the storm is in fact slowing down. Not just that we should not give up hope and that dawn is coming and who knows what that may accomplish, but, you know, dawn is ever the hope of men. Um, he gives practical reason. He predicts, yeah, the snow is actually lessening. And the wind is lessening. Though, again, as we see from Frodo's reaction, he cannot tell. He can see no sign of the snow slackening. He doesn't seem to see any sign of the wind lessening. Either. Yeah, you're right, evil Dr. Cannon. Aragorn offers Estel, and Boromir offers Amdir. Yeah, that's exactly what happens here. Um... Boromir has put himself forward plausibly as one of the most of one of the people of the party who is most experienced with snow. Um, this seems very likely. It's even well, it's unlikely that he's been in the snow more often than Aragorn, just because Aragorn is so much older than he is. Um, and Gandalf more so. But with the exception of Aragorn and Gandalf, he surely has seen more snow than anyone else than anyone else in the party. Um, 
Yeah. Bormir's Horn, I agree. Him, the way that he's staring out into the blackness suggests, well, I don't know if it necessarily suggests him being in tune with nature exactly, so much as he wants to make observations. The fact that he steps out into the blackness is interesting. Um, why, Why step out into the blackness? Why leave the circle of the fire? And the answer is because you can't see anything when you're next to the... If you want to see something other than the circle of figures that are huddling around, you know, the faces huddling over the fire, you've got to turn your back on the fire and walk away because you can't see anything out in the darkness. Remember the wall of blackness behind them? He wants to see into the wall of blackness. And you're not going to really be able to see to measure the snow just by looking at the the snowflakes revealed white for a moment in the light of the dying fire, either. Um, <clears throat> it's exactly like turning off your lights so you can see out the window after dark. Exactly. Exactly. He wants to actually see. How is the snowfall? What does it look like? And I will say, as someone who has spent a fair percentage of my life in the snowy climates, that... Um, you know, with experience, you can get a sense of when it's slowing, even before the more obvious signs, like the ones that Frodo notices, about the flakes becoming larger and fewer. Um, <clears throat> once that happens, the snow is almost over, right? But you can make observations and get a sense of the snow growing less, like what, you know, what, what sort of direction the needle's pointing, right, in terms of, in terms of the snow. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and even the feeling of the wind is going to be clearer, right? Listening to and feeling the wind out away from the fire on your own is going to be easier to notice. So like the steps that Boromir is taking here make excellent sense from a, you know, a sort of practical standpoint um, that this is um, this is what you would do if you want to make some empirical observations about the snow um, and he's able to offer his assurance not blindly right not without data he gathers data first and then draws conclusions based on that data right based on his in his opinion based on his observations um The snow is growing less and the wind is quieter. The storm is tailing off. Um, yeah, um, <laughs> I like that. Into the Wall of Blackness is, should be Boromir's uh, autobiography title, uh, says Boromir's Horn. That's interesting. Um, into the Blackness. Yeah. Um, staring into the Blackness. Staring into the blackness. That's what I would. That's what I would say. Um, that would be a good name for his autobi- A good title for his autobiography. Um, it's a little interesting that Legolas doesn't have an early bird sense of the change in weather, Rowan. But at the same time, two things. One, 
how much snow do they get in Mirkwood? You know, how many times has he been in a situation like this? Snow in the mountains, right? Um, snow under the trees is a different kind of experience, right? Um, you're not going to get this. It's not. It's not going to look and feel the same way there. And secondly, remember that Legolas is. Well, again, this is in the passage that Tolkien took out after the first draft, but um, he isn't in tune with rock spirits and mountain spirits. Karathras is a a spirit that's alien uh, to him of the Sylvan folk. Woodland spirits? Sure. Yeah. He probably would get a clear sense of what was going on in a forest. But on a mountain? He's a noob. Um, yeah. Yeah. Evil Dr. Cannon, I think that that is absolutely correct. In many cases, at least. Not necessarily all. There are some sterling counterexamples. But it does seem, in many cases, that elves have surprisingly little life experience, given their longevity. Um, I think of times in which this is actually gets commented on in Tolkien. That is, the, 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 the way that I recall it being commented on, and I think I'm mainly thinking of the Athrobeth here, um, is sort of how much more living humans do in their short period of time than elves do. Um, and absolutely, they can be just as parochial as the rest of Middle-earth. Um, if what you like is staying home, right? if you live in a particular isolated region and are perfectly contented there, a thousand years of life experience isn't going to give you any wider experience you'll just stay in that place that you know where you are happier longer right um yeah yeah um yeah jj i'd go even further than that um jj says it's probably incredibly easy to procrastinate as an elf no sense of urgency to drive one to act today rather than tomorrow not only that even i i don't think that elves even pr procrastinate because procrastination implies a drive or a sense that a thing needs to be done today, but you're going to put it off for tomorrow, right? I don't even think they have step one of that equation, right? Um, that it, it's not even about them um, putting off the thing that they know they should do today until tomorrow. Why should they do it today, right? Um, no, um, no, no procrastination exactly needed. Um, yeah, exactly. We squeeze it all in in a shorter period of time. But more than that, like we squeeze more. Humans, the human's experience with the world. The, again, think of the way, think of the, think of in the Silmarillion, all of those um, elvish, like uh, adjectives that are applied to human to try to characterize humans, right? Remember, like uh, sickly, um, the you know all of the, you know that we, we we get that long list. Um, the elves are not just 
surprised at the gumption of the humans. They're surprised by the things that they desire, by the restlessness that they experience, that the drive of the drive that they have. It's not just, wow, it would have taken me 500 years to get around to doing all the things that you did. You know, you're a real go-getter. They want to go get totally different things. Like they, they, they want to go get stuff. Elves don't go get, right? That's not what they do. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, yes. So again, it's, it's not, it is not a merely quantitative difference. It is a qualitative difference, right? Anyway, we're, um, digressing here, but, um, but yes, I think that for all of these reasons, I suspect that we, we will get Legolas, Briefly, right? We're going to, Legolas is going to feature within the next few weeks. And there we will finally get his perspective. And I think it's important. Um, I think it's important that we haven't heard anything from Legolas. Legolas, what, when we do get something from Legolas, what we will get is alien. It's weird. It's deviant. It's different from everybody. Legos has been having a totally different experience during this night than the rest of them have had. And I think that's why we have not gotten anything from or about Legolas. Because the first emphasis, the first, you know, Tolkien's first emphasis in describing this, Frodo's first emphasis as narrator, is to connect this experience to the experience that his readers are going to be having. Human readers, by and large. He will give us a contrast with the elf viewpoint on this whole situation. But he doesn't start with it, or in a sense, this is an incautious word to use, but I'm going to use it anyway. He doesn't pollute the description of this experience with the elvish perspective, because all that does is distract from the experience itself and prompt us to think of something quite different. That is, instead of thinking about the experience of being there in the snow and the cold and the sleepiness and the, and the dread and the fear, instead of thinking about those things, our attention would immediately shift to thinking about Legolas, to think about elves, right? Whoa. How do elves experience it that way? I wonder why, right? Now all of a sudden we're thinking about elves and their queer ways, right? We're not thinking about the experience of the hobbits at all anymore. And I don't think that he wanted to take us out of that, right? First we get that, the full range of that experience. Then after the turning point has come and we are on, we're moving towards literally the downhill slope, um, we, um, that's when we are told as a little FYI, right? By the way, Legos had been having a totally different experience this whole time. And here are some glimpses into how he acted and what he was thinking about. Um, yeah. Boromir's Horn, I have no idea. If the fellowship, what, what a wonderful question. 
What a wonderful, wonderfully unanswerable question. If the Fellowship froze to death, would Legolas sadly wander back to Rivendell and tell Elrond about it, or become default ring-bearer to complete the quest? Um, no clue. No clue. Um, hard to imagine, since Leg Legolas was actually at the Council of Elrond, and therefore understands what's at stake, that he just wanders off and leaves the ring in the snow, right? Um, though I can't help... I can't help but think... I can't help but remember ahead. Uh, remember Shagrat's commentary? Um, Shagrat's commentary on... Uh, finding the body of Frodo in the pass. He calls leaving the body just lying there in the middle of the pass a regular elvish trick. Shagrat believes that's how you could expect elves to act. Just leaving the bodies of the dead lying there. Now, I don't know that how trustworthy Shagrat is. Um, you know, how much real data there is behind that um, observation. Um... Yeah. Well, I think he would take it, too. But where would he take it? Would he... No, Gildalaman, I don't think Shagrat is projecting an orc trick on the elves. I don't think... Um, I don't think that's what orcs would do with the dead, necessarily. Um, yeah. Anyway. Um... Now, does Shagrat think that it's atrocious? Anyway, never mind. Never mind. I'm not going to get into detailed analysis of Shagrat's words. We'll have plenty of time for that soon enough. However, um, the point I want to make is there is some reason, though we might doubt the source, to believe that Legolas would not feel any compunction in leaving the rest of them frozen dead and stiff, if they did all die, that he probably, you know, would he, um, yeah, anyway, we'll see. Um, uh, yeah, you're right, Marielle, I suspect it will be before my youngest child completes graduate school. Um, but, um, yeah, where would he take, if he took the ring, where would he take it? Would he be like, well, off to Mount Doom, I suppose. Would he take it back to Elrond? Would he take it back to Mirkwood, where he was headed? No clue. All three are really interesting. All right, would he take it to Lothlorien? Conceivably. Conceivably. Um... Yeah, yeah. Um, three fascinating, four fascinating what if scenarios, right? Yeah, as April says, the good thing is we'll never know. Exactly, exactly. Um, fifth, I suppose, um, is Almeray, as you say, he could claim it 
for himself. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Fascinating, but unanswerable question. Anyway, fortunately, we are not, in fact, all going to be freezing to death in the snow because Boromir turns out to be exactly correct. And the length of time between Boromir's perception that the snow is growing less and Frodo's perception that the snow is growing less is a testimony to the difference in his experience in the snow in the mountains. Uh, uh, the difference between that, his experience and Frodo's experience um, of this. Um, yes, Sarah, that's, Sarah makes a really good point. So Sarah says, it doesn't seem like it's necessarily only an offer of Amdir on Boromir's part. Several times, meaningful Estelle is inspired by physical changes. The wind direction, Theoden seeing the clear light sky instead of darkness, Sam seeing the star in a gap in the stars, or a gap in the clouds. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's true. That's true. You could also say... Um, Here's the last thing that I want to think about, and then I'll, then I'll, then we'll go. I want to think about the beginning, and we get Gimli's grumble in the middle, and Gimli is like the, um, he's like the 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 lieutenant grumbler in the group, right? Sam, of course, is the is the 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 grumbler captain, um, but Gimli is his lieutenant, right? He is the second ranked grumbler uh, of the group. And as Grumbler, as we were talking about with Sam, he is here giving voice to a, at least a fear, certainly a thought, that doubtless most of them have. That Gimli should be the one to articulate it, Scott, exactly as I was thinking, um, is um, that his high view of Karathras, right? Um, and so that it makes it appropriate that he would be the one to express this here. But um, sandwiched around Gimli's expression of concern, dread, fear that doubtless most of them share, we have Aragorn and Boromir. And how the two of them correspond with each other. Aragorn with his statement, which is perfectly true but not enormously helpful, um, that the dawn is coming for what good that will do um, but which contains an implicit message of Estelle an implicit message of hope and then Boromir following that up once again I feel like there's an interpretive choice that we can make here um, we could see Boromir as one-upping Aragorn right Aragorn says the dawn is not far off you could imagine like if you were a if you were doing a film adaptation of this scene and you were the director, you could instruct Boromir's actor at this moment to like roll his eyes again, right? Like, man, these people are so like, who's leading this group? This is awful, right? Um, Dawn is not far off. Well, so what? Look, let's actually, what you, here's what you need to do. Um, you know, people are concerned, obviously concerned that, like, we're all going to die and the storm's not going to... How about we actually just go and see if maybe the storm is actually slowing down or not, right? Um, 
And so he goes out, makes his own observations, and comes back and is like, so, um, I, unlike, you know, uh, our esteemed friend Aragorn, I have something useful to offer, right? I actually looked at the snow, um, and uh, I can tell you that it's going... So that, that would be one way. And I would think, like, that fits with what we get in the text here. Like, that absolutely fits. Um, you can make that work. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. Um, I, um... I think, Mariel, I agree. I think he's backing up Gimli. Um, and the reason... The primary reason I think this is that what we have seen from Boromir through this whole sequence, from when they were at the bottom of the mountain, you know, from the from the firewood suggestion all the way up through this moment, Boromir has been unfailingly diplomatic. I do not believe that anything that he said has been... I mean, he's been doing a, a great job. I think that we can suspect that he feels frustrated. We we might suspect that he, you know, I think if you pulled Boromir's side and interviewed him and he were being wholly frank and unreserved with you, he would probably admit that he thinks he should be in charge. Right. I mean, I think in his heart of hearts, he believes that he should be in charge. Um, but he has not demonstrated that, acted on that, actually done anything to undermine either Aragorn or Gandalf. Um, and yes, Evil Dr. Cannon, I agree, he probably doesn't take insubordination lightly. Yes. Um, though I would also add um, that... The one time in which you, I could imagine somebody with the kind of military experience that Boromir has, um, not taking insubordination lightly, but um, perhaps being willing to cross that line, would be when he feels that his own experience and um, qualifications are being under-evaluated, right? Like... Uh, um, But nevertheless, right? That like it's a travesty that he should not be in charge, right? I could, I, I, but but in any case, we don't see him doing that, right? We don't see we don't we don't see him doing that. Um, he does, Scott, as you say, know this respectful way to offer opinion to superior officers, and he's following that. He's obeying that. I even think Barryder is referring to his blowing his horn originally. Um, even that notice he he did that in a uh, um, forgiveness rather than permission kind of thing right he he stayed true to what he does um, and he was always gonna do that right but he was tactful enough to know if he had said so it is my tradition, it is my custom to blow my horn upon departing. Um, so I'm going to do that now if that's okay with everybody. If he had said that, they would probably have said no. And then he'd have been in a pickle. Does he break his custom or does he... So, instead, 
forgiveness rather than permission. And yes, Scott, as you say, he hasn't blown it since. Now, he doesn't exactly ask for forgiveness either. It's you're true. You're, you're exactly right. It is, it, it's true. It's, it's neither, neither permission nor forgiveness does he ask. Um, uh, but, um, uh, but yeah, yeah. Anyway, I, I'm not sure I exactly see Boromir as explicitly backing up Aragorn here. Like, I don't, I don't think that Boromir is consciously like saying to himself, like, let me, let me, you know, come to Aragorn's aid here. Let me, let me, uh, let me boost him up a little bit. I, I, I don't think that, but I think that what he's doing, I think that he is sort of responding. Aragorn, he sees what Aragorn was doing. Aragorn is giving hope. Aragorn is attempting to raise the morale of his troops. And I think Boromir seeing that is like, yeah, good call. Good call. And then he has an idea about, you know, so let me go see if there's some more concrete reassurance I can use to supplement that, you know, Estelle full statement of the dawn being not far off. And he finds that there is and comes back and offers it simply in two simple statements. The snow is growing less and the wind is quieter. Two simple statements. Um, no, he doesn't give any opinion and therefore I think we should do this or, and there, he doesn't, he doesn't try, he doesn't take over it, right? He doesn't, he's, he, he's not in that sense one-upping Aragorn. Aragorn gives some encouragement to the troops and he comes back and is like, you call that encouragement to the troops? I'll give you encouragement to the troops. Right? He doesn't. He just provides some supporting evidence. The snow is growing less and the wind is quieter. Um, he doesn't... Just two objective statements. I mean, again, in his judgment. Um, but um, he makes the two objective statements and he doesn't draw attention to himself. He doesn't... Um, like this is not a sort of implicit campaign to be elected the new leader of the party or something, right? I don't see it as one-upping, as a prideful competition with Aragorn. I think if that were his motivation here, there'd be something, some dig, some reference to himself, right? Some boosting of his own um, profile, right? Um, even... A simple thing like, um, you know, the snow is growing less and the wind is quieter, or so I deem, right? Even something as simple as that would still make him the hero of the statement, right? Um, let me put myself forward as the one who is granting you this reassurance, but he doesn't do that, right? He doesn't make it about him at all. And it certainly doesn't make it about him versus Aragorn. I once again see him being extremely... Um, extremely diplomatic here, extremely, uh, um, polite. Um, although at the same time, he is certainly doing the things that he would do as leader. Um, yeah, no hint of undermining authority. That's exactly it. That's exactly it, Aspen. Um, uh, just what I'm, just what I'm thinking here. Um, yeah, um, but Freebird, you're right. It, but it still is a supplement, right? And 
more direct, more practical. Um, he is, I think, not at all undermining Aragorn's authority. But he is also doing no harm to the perception of his own authority. He's not putting himself forward. He's not elevating himself. He's not making it about him. But at the same time, I think if he were leading a troop of his own soldiers up into the mountains, I think this is exactly how he would act. Stepping out away from the fire, putting himself into danger, right? Um, uh, separating himself while everyone else stays warm by the fire, him alone going out into the cold and darkness in order to assess whether the snow, and then coming back and being able to assure people the snow is growing less and the wind is quieter. I think that's just what he would do. Except he might add some commands, right, if he were in charge. But um, but again, I think he's sort of showing his um, sort of style here. Um, yeah, Vardendale, I think it's a good reminder. He's unfailingly polite and respectful. He consistently offers good advice and he stays in his place. He's really being established as a perfect hero. We're remembering ahead to his succumbing to the ring, but the point is being made that he succumbs despite his heroism, perhaps even because of it. The evil is in the ring, not in Boromir. Yes, yes. Boromir, um... Boromir's involvement in the story is so slight. You know, he does so few things that it's honestly one of the things that has surprised me most about this chapter is to be reminded of how often Boromir speaks, how much of Boromir we actually get. Um, we get more than I remember because he's easy to overlook in some ways. Um, and then certainly, of course, it's even easier to let his ultimate falling to the temptation of the ring color, in retrospect, his earlier actions. Um, yeah, Mariel totally agree. Like, his leadership style is not a bad style. Um, we get plenty of hints that he was a good and beloved commander, and it is if we pay attention to what he says and how he says it and how he acts, it is easy to believe. Um, it's easy to understand why the people of Gondor loved Boromir. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Interesting. Almeria is wondering if this, perhaps, is one of the reasons why Frodo includes this story, even post-Mordor. Does Is it for Boromir's sake, in part, that we do get so much detail in this story? I also think a thing that we haven't been tracking so much, but maybe we should pay closer attention to, we certainly will after the Bridge of Khazad-dûm, is the development of Aragorn's character. Aragorn stepping into the position of leadership. Aragorn's, Aragorn's journey from being the company's guide through, you know, Eregion, all the way to, you know, the Black Gate and the Field of Cormel and beyond, right? Um... Of course, I'm I'm especially interested in this relationship between Aragorn and Boromir. I think that's 
I think that's pretty cool um, and really fun to watch. But just watching Aragorn himself, Aragorn is the chieftain of the Dúnedain. He has been a leader for a long time. He has experienced many things. We will learn in the appendices that he has been in leadership positions like in Gondor, right, as Thorongil and stuff. So he's... Aragorn has a lot of leadership experience. But this is a moment. I mean, remember the reflections on the moment with Aragorn we saw from, from that moment when he was at Weathertop, right? Saying, like, you know, Elendil stood right here where I am standing, waiting for Gilgalad to come. Um, that's... Um, uh, we've seen him, the self-consciousness with which he has been sort of stepping into that kingly role. And now... I will come to Minas Tirith. He is on the way. He is, every step he takes, well, almost every step takes him closer. He's about to take some steps that will take him further away from uh, Minas Tirith. But anyway, he's, um, he's moving, he's, acti- he's actively moving toward, it's happening, right? It's, uh, it's actually happening now. The test has come. Again, thinking of the story of Aragorn and Arwen in Appendix A um, and their conversation on you know, on Karen Amroth and at his on his deathbed, um, their tri- his trial uh, is now upon him. How does he respond to it? Right? Um, what does he do? How does he handle it? That too will be interesting to see. Um, but um, anyway, okay. Um, We will stop there. Um, next week, Dawn will have come. Well, not next week. So I won't be here next week. I'm going to be uh, traveling with my family next week. It's uh, my son's winter break. Um, so I will be... Um, well, I was about to say I will be uh, buried in snow uh, on a mountainside next week as we'll be skiing. Um but I won't be because I don't ski. So my job is to be uh, in the car waiting with hot chocolate when the skiers come down, you see. Um, uh, that's my role in the skiing process. So, um, uh, and to cook dinner <laughs> for the skiers <laughs> as well and carry stuff. These are my roles. Uh, it's like a combination of Sam and Bill the Pony, basically, is kind of where, 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 where I will be next week. Um, but but my family will be on mountaintops in the snow uh, next week um, over in Vermont. And, uh, but I'll be back the week after that. So um, no class next week, but I'll see you guys the week after. All right. Um, uh, I will. Yeah, it was funny. When, uh, when we moved back to New Hampshire 10 years ago, I never skied when I was a kid here. Uh, and my... Uh, you know, at first my wife was saying, you need to learn to ski so you can ski with us and we can all ski together as a family. But then after we had like our first family ski trip with, uh, with me being the caddy, uh, she was like, actually, no, you shouldn't learn to ski. This is perfect. (laughs) It's much better, uh, to have one person not skiing. Anyway, thanks everybody. Um, it is field trip time for those who can stay for the field trip. Good evening.
Good evening, Valorian. How are you? Doing all right. Yeah, I'm the hot chocolate guy in my family, too. I tried skiing once, and I fell down, and I couldn't get up for half an hour just scooting around, crab walking on my butt. And it like, is that, a challenge. I'm just like, yes, no, human dignity could not withstand such a trial. Yeah, with me, it was a pride thing. Um, I moved to New Hampshire originally when I was 10, um, and it was more than my uh, fifth grade beginning of middle school ego could stand um, when all of my peers uh, at the age of 10 were, you know, skiing on all of the hardest trails and they were already experts. um, And I was going and doing ski lessons with the two year olds. Uh, And I decided there was more dignity in being a conscientious objector than in being a, a, a just a very, very amateur skier at that point. Oh no, I was, uh, I was 16 and I was on a Girl Scout trip and all of the ski instructors were really young and really hot. And there's me just crab walking, <laughs> dragging my butt through the snow, yeah. waiting for someone to take pity on me. And of course, the cutest, hottest one helps me up. And at that point, I'm like, I'm taking my dignity to the fireplace. And I drank 18 <laughs> cups of hot chocolate and I had a great time. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so tonight we're going back to Cardoan. All right. Lots more to look at in Cardoan. So uh, looking back at the map for a moment. Going out here to Cardoan. Okay. So we were down in Ruddymore. Um, uh, Geirvarad down here in the bottom, in the southwest corner is where we were where we'd gotten to before. So I say we start back at Sarnford, work our way through. There are some other ruins, sort of lesser ruins, I think, sort of near the road. Let's see if we can make it all the way over to Hearn, this, what looks like a town over here or something. At least there's a stable master there. Um, mm-hmm. And we'll, we'll see how much there is in between along the road there. But um, all right. we will set that as our goal. If, um, if we'll see if that turns out to be a reasonable goal. Mm-hmm. Oh, the voice I, I just pronounced it, what, Herna? Is how they pronounce it? Okay. Herna. Herna. I can get behind that. Yeah. Okay. So here we are at Sarnford again. Heading back out. So we've got first our old Arnorian hunting lodge. Mm hmm. Convenient for going up and hunting in the hunting preserve that is, that will someday be the Shire. Mm -hmm. And of course, we now have the large tower that we were just exploring last time looming in front of us and the little picnic gazebo on the right there. Yeah, so I, I still I maintain my theory that this tower was built in the early days of Cardoan, not in the old days, not in the old Arnorian days, because I think that the tower itself is designed to imitate the symbol, um, not the other way around. I don't think it's I don't think that the symbol 
of Cardolan that we see carved over doorways is enough like that tower to suggest that that tower was the original and that they're imitating that tower. Mm-hmm. I I think that that tower is an imitation of the symbol instead. Uh, I, wasn't there a ruin up here? I thought I saw... Yeah. Uh, for, I'm not oh. sure if it's over this ridge or the next one. I think I thought it was over this ridge. Let me just, just, let's just take a little gander. Ah, there it is. That's what I was seeing. Oh, Didn't yeah. look like it's much, like, but I wanted to just see up here. It's hard. It's not even a ruin. It's like a corner. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, so so I, I think that the symbol, my theory is that the symbol of Cardolan predates that tower. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that tower was probably built in the first phase of like newfound Cardolingian patriotism, right? They've just separated. The Civil War has just begun. The schism, the Arnorian schism has occurred. And the people of oh. Cardolan come south down here and they're like, Get here's our new kingdom versus, you know, we're, we're doing the thing. And they build that tower among other things. Wait, can't get in there? No, I can't, I can't. get in. I guess we can get in over the top. Oh, I see. Yep. Wait. Whoa. I'm sure that's a great idea, though. I wonder, I wonder what about this tower makes you float in the air. Uh... That's peculiar. Boolians. There's a strange atmospheric phenomenon here. Fizzy lifting yes, drinks, Hologrow. I think that's yeah. exactly it. It's a good theory. This is where they brew, which is why it's so far away from the other tower, because you don't want to brew the fizzy lifting drinks right near the home base. No, I'm with Ron on the river. It's non-Euclidean. Yeah, yeah. No, get- okay, all right, so... Cats Soon after, the, the people of Cardolan, or maybe this is a ruin. The rock here, the stone here, does not look like the brownish stone made patriotically with the local stones. No, um, this looks like the kind of stone you'd see in Freeland. Uh, exactly. So I think that this is an older. So that means that the people of Arnor, mm-hmm. of old pre-Civil War Arnor, had discovered the fizzy lifting drinks. Um, and this was an isolated thing. Probably, okay, so I think that there was, but it's in the middle of nowhere. There's nothing else around here, no town. There's an isolated hunting lodge that's still relatively far away. So I think that this was the tower of a strange Arnorian hermit who came to this remote location to experiment with the fizzy lifting drinks. Or and, lock his daughter away. Yes. And we can see the peculiar magical after effects of um, whatever bizarre experimentation was happening here. But after his death, this place was treated as a haunted site. And so the people of later Cardolan never built here. Uh, It stands to reason. I I don't know how you'd uh, build on anything like this or rebuild. No. No, yeah, there seems to have been some cataclysm. Perhaps he came to a bad end. Um, uh, It is possible, Stun Duck, that a glass elevator was involved. But given the way in which the ruin itself still seems to be involved in whatever perturbation of gravity seems to be in place here, suggests that there was some possibly tragic final disaster of his experimentation, and it led to 
very likely, I fear, his own demise and certainly the destruction of his tower, which is set at such an odd angle, right? That corner of that ruin. I think it's all a part of the picture that we can see here. Wow. Did not expect this. But, you know, mad scientist Arnorian wizard living in isolation stands to reason. Hmm. It's one reason to uh, leave something abandoned. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you say there might be, because of rumors of it was haunted, uh, this, uh, I'd say that's pretty haunted. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's, uh, it's kind of verifiable. Yeah. Okay, so we're heading back. Oh, no, no, let's just go up. Right now I'm doing the fatal thing. Let's just go up to the next rise and see what's over the next rise. Um, yeah, yeah. But no, we're, we're, we're winding back eventually towards the road, heading over to Herna. See, if you pronounce it as two syllables, you kind of have to roll the R. Herna. Herna. I mean, you can't just say I, Herna. Yeah, I always go, I, I roll too long, it's my problem. So, it sounds, it like, sounds like hernia, right? Well, so you can't like say it that way. Herna. Right. Herna. Herna. Exactly. Herna. Herna. See, now I, want, now I want to drop the H. Yeah. Herna. Right? You want to say Herna? Maybe. Herna. Okay, so we just um, crossed yeah. over the road, just checking for ruins. Uh, see, there's one S- straight ahead, and that's due southeast. Where will that take us? Way out of the way. Okay, let's maybe go to that one down there when we explore the southward road over there. But here's one that's closer. Though I approach this new isolated ruin now with a certain degree of trepidation... Ah, rightly so. I mean, who knows what we'll find here, or if it's altogether safe. Oh, I see the village. That must be Herna, up ahead. Oh, yeah. Okay. All right, we've got a... looks like an old dam over there. Hmm. What's left of it? This has a floor like a gazebo, but it clearly was a tower solid tower with an actual entrance at ground level and uh-huh. ox apparently oh in direct eye line sight of the other one as well oh uh, yeah Signal yeah so we don't know how tall this was and we don't necessarily need beacons but let's see if we get up to the, any vantage yeah the fact we can't see it from the ground ground floor kind of implies that you're meant to go up high and then you be in perfect eyeline side of the other because we know that they used, you know, right. You can, I mean, you can see the mad scientist from here pretty well, too. Yeah, the stone is not like the brownstone of the other, so this could also be an old Arnorian mm-hmm. thing. Yeah, it's got the gold stone with the blue, with the blue yeah. ribbon in it. Yeah, exactly. So far, I'm taking... The, again, no, no, it's possible. I mean, I don't want to overstate the possibilities here. The the browner stone of the main tower, whose name mm-hmm. I keep forgetting, was it? Garvarad. Garvarad. So Garvarad could have been deliberately... Like, it could be a deliberate anomaly. Like, they, they might have decided to build that tower in particular out of the local brownstone um, mm-hmm. as some kind of a statement of, like... Here shall we use the native stone, like, 
here we set our flag as the new people of Cardolan, um, and we shall build out of good Cardolingian stone. Um, whereas these could have been built on earlier foundations or be old towers that were taken over, or there could have just been simply like, you know, everywhere else we shall follow the tradition of our ancestors of like using this other kind of stone. But here at Garvarad, we shall do it differently by gum. Um, or you know, this, these were already here, so why mess with it? Um, you're, yeah, exactly. So working theory that they're earlier than Garvarad, but we can't be completely sure. Okay. Um, interesting that that tower... So, when Tolkien describes towers, you know, when he says, like, there was a tower, like Minas Morgul or Orthanc or whatever, yeah, he seems genuinely, generally, in his visual imagination, to have imagined, like, an actual tower. Like a cylindrical, standalone tower. Orthanc, of course, is one of those very clearly and very explicitly. But you see this, where you can see this most is in his doodling in the margins of his manuscripts where Mm -hmm. he's sketching towers. And they tend by default, like the Tower of Kirith Ungol, Minas Morgul, they tend to be by default individual towers. Uh, Yeah, that's true. And, And yeah, you compare it to places in London called the Tower of X and the Tower of Bobble. Exactly. Which just means castle, basically. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Um, and I... And, and Locho tends to follow that as much as anything else. All right, what, which intersection are we in? Uh, we're coming around Herna here. Let's... Yeah, um, look at the big double-decker guy on top of the... Yeah, I was looking up on the cliff there. One fleet. Are those all the Cardolan Tower symbol above each one of those arches? I looks can't like a tower. It almost looks nautical. Yeah, is that Karanost that we're seeing? Wow, yeah, maybe mm-hmm. it is. Across the river I, and up I, the hill, yeah. Anyway, um, kind of like we'll see. Let's, let's go around this way. It's a slightly longer way around to Hattern, but. Um, we can do a, the southward loop next time. Oh, perhaps. look at the little half timbers! It's so cozy looking. It it is very cute. Okay, so um, anyway, uh, yeah. Anyway, my point is the point I was getting around to eventually was in Lotro, they seem to generally when he says tower do the, like, it's actually a castle, not just a tower. Um, as Tolkien himself sometimes in rarer occasions uses, such as Minas Tirith is not just a tower, right, in the middle of a field or something. It's a whole city, um, but still called the Tower of Guard. Um, uh, yeah, that I was wondering about that, too, about the burned one. Looks like another burned-out hunting lodge. Looks very similar to the other hunting lodge. That wasn't the one we that was on the main road before. This one? Yeah. This is a different one. The other one is right by Sound Sound Ford. Oh, I got I got turned around. Yeah, yeah, exactly the same because I'm pretty sure the other one was also the Sarnorian stone. Yes, and burned on top. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Burned on top, raw on the bottom. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, okay. Old Arnorian Hunting Lodge again, I think, on the Hunting Lodge pattern. Yep. So this one is used by, like, the Old Arnorian Lord who chose, like, this whole area in southern Cardolan as his hunting, you know, domain. And the other guy's probably mm -hmm. going across the, the river into the Shire. Um, I was noticing some ruinous action over by the lake up there, but let's, um, we're this close to Heron, we might as well go in there. We'll, we'll use Heron as our new, Herna, excuse me, as our new home base to, um, uh, explore from there. So we'll, we'll definitely come back to that. But, um, okay, yeah. This is where I wanted to go. Yeah, that's a good way to distinguish it from, you know, Kernunos the hunter kind of herd. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, sorry, I keep saying, but I never actually get around to saying what I was actually saying. Um, oh. What I was actually saying was that tower that we were looking at, that isolated mm. tower, mm. is one of the few Lotro towers that actually looks like Tolkien pictured towers. You know, like this yeah. round tower on hilltop. Um, you know, single cylindrical tower perched on hilltop, which was Tolkien's default imagination of a tower. And we rarely get those, actually, um, in Lotro. But that one was one, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, and I'm with you that the, the, um, the about the first thing you do when you break off in the Civil War is start a... Uh, <laughs> Revising your history and establishing national yeah. uh, nationalism in your own own particular brand. Yeah, yeah, man, this place is busy. Look at this. So we've got the big what it, now clearly we can see on the other side of the main hill that that tower up on the hills on, Cadenost um, or whatever I guess it is. Um, we can see what used to be a whole city. So there's a whole city up there which we look forward to talking about. But then yeah. we have. Um, also, another burned-out ruin straight to the north. Is that the same one? No. Straight to the north of us from here? No, I'm not looking north. I'm not pointed north at all. I'm pointed southeast. Okay. So we've got another one to the southeast, and then beyond the oh, hill yeah. beyond that, we've got some more pillars and things up there. Oh, right? yeah. Um, so, Where I mean, it's like every... That? Every vista that you go to, you can usually see like several sets of ruins. Um, How? So this was a the the suggestion. Therefore, is that at some point, this was really quite a. So look, there, and there on the next hill over from the columns, is another set of ruins. Like at some point, this was quite a thickly settled area. Jeepers! I bet the tourism around here is amazing. It's like Avesbury. <laughs> I'm serious though you can't throw a stone but hit a ruin out here yeah they're all over the place I have to see okay. how much of it they stole to make uh, these walls and houses out here yes exactly yeah, beautiful little Oxford looking place what can I do for you little Brie looking place okay Made so we can Getting late, and I've been in the. I'm going to uh, milestone. Let's get the milestone here. Oh yeah. We'll start from here instead of Sarn Ford next time. Okay. Um, because from here, looking at the map, 
we can explore Heron itself, of course. And then uh-huh. I want to head down the road towards the Minhiriath and look for the ruins down in the south over there. And then we can come... I think we should then head back up north. We'll go back up to that little pond and stuff. And then we'll need to go across. I think I think maybe we'll go to Tharbad last. Mm-hmm. So kind of loop up around to the north and then head east from there, across over into Andrath and then the south downs. And then, yeah, we have to do all of Swanfleet. Yeah, through through Sedgemead and down into Wait. Tharbad. And then, yes, then on to, to Swanfleet after Tharbad. Excellent. Yeah. Oh, awesome. What's the name of that pub? The pub here? Yeah. Sorry, I just noticed the, the cross, sign. Crossway there. House, it is called. Crossway House. Interesting. Jeez. Okay. So we'll explore the town next time. It's getting late, and I've been developing an unsavory habit of keeping people late, so I will uh, I will stop doing that and end somewhere closer to on time here tonight. Um, but um, thanks very much. For joining us so we'll be back in two weeks don't forget uh, no uh no class next week but we will be back the week after uh and we will continue our explorations um we'll see if we can maybe finish up the whole what is it ruddy Moore area well, maybe yeah. we can get through the rest of it next time we'll see um all right thanks everybody good night now good night